Welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Over the next few episodes, I'm going to talk to several people who use the concept of food sovereignty in their work, which is also a term I've written about in some of my research. To get us started, it would be helpful to think about what food sovereignty is, so I thought it would be a good idea to begin with this conversation with my friend Anne Portman on food sovereignty and gender equality. Anne is working in an ecofeminist framework, and we discuss what that term means as well as what insights ecofeminism has about food sovereignty and our relationship with animals we might eat. We also mention an article I'll put in the show notes by the author Val Plumwood, whose work you should really check out, in my opinion, about what it means to think of ourselves as things that can be eaten. So let me read you Anne's biography. Anne Portman earned her PhD in philosophy from the University of Georgia in 2016. Her work is situated at the intersections of feminist politics, environmental ethics, and food studies. She's published work in the academic journals Ethics and the Environment and the Journal of Agriculture and Environmental Ethics. Anne is currently an independent scholar who writes, mothers, gardens, and eats in Atlanta, Georgia. You can check out some of Anne's informal writings on philosophy, parenthood, race, politics, and living in the urban American South on her blog, AnnePortmanPhD.com, uh, which I'll also link in the show notes. And now, here's my conversation with Ann Portman. So how are you doing? You know, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Great. I'm glad to be talking to you. Well, I really appreciate you agreeing to do this. Um, So what I wanted to talk to you about today, it's based on a a paper that we've been discussing uh, before this interview, but I think it hits at a lot of really good concepts that I haven't spoken about yet on this podcast. So this is that paper on food sovereignty and gender justice. So mm-hmm. um, just to start, uh, I've written about food sovereignty. Uh, you've written about food sovereignty, but you're the first person I've had on the podcast to talk about it. And I mean, I'm sure you won't be the last, but let me ask you then, uh, what, what do you mean by food sovereignty? So I draw my definition from the sort of transnational activist groups definitions that began forming in, I think, the mid-1990s, sort of formally, and have been reformulated and redefined through dialogue and activism uh, ever since then. So based on their definitions, I think of food sovereignty as asserting the right of peoples to define and organize their own agricultural and food systems. And they tend to be defined so as to meet local needs and especially to secure local access to land, water, seed. Yeah. So it's focused a lot on these sort of uh, local communities and their relationship with uh, sort of their own food systems. Yes. And having the right to that. Right. Yeah. So food or control over their own food system as a right rather than a good to be pursued. So yeah. So I mean, speaking of that, like what's sort of the contrast case? Like what's another way of thinking about food justice? Um, Like, you know, I know you wrote in the paper a little bit about the FAO and the way they think about things. Right. Um, One phrase that some of the scholars who are much more qualified to speak on this than I am um, tend to use is 
the globalized or globalizing food regime, right? There's a sort of global corporate top-down model, Mm -hmm. I suppose, that would be in contrast to the local or regional people and need-driven dispersed model, bottom-up, I suppose. Right, yeah. um, That the food sovereignty folks um, want to empower. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think empowerment's good too, because it's not just... um about like distribution of food, for example, but also giving people the the control or the autonomy to figure out what that uh, food system looks like for them. Right. And it, it, you know, if you look at the history of how these movements emerged, they were really in response to policies that were very attentive to food quantity, <laughs> right? But not necessarily uh, even distribution. It was more sort of like production models. So like food sovereignty gets um, contrasted with food security in ways that are sometimes helpful and ways that are not always helpful. I think that some food sovereignty discourse tends to oversimplify food security and also ignore the way that the definition of that concept has changed over time. But um, there are probably still a good contrast to be drawn between the two. Right. So the key there is that it's looking at access, but right. that access could be provided by any number of organizations that they do or don't have control over. There's a big difference um, in right. access from uh, farmers living in the United States or even consumers living in the United States and um, impoverished people who are getting uh, food aid from the United States. Right. So a, a typical kind of uh, critique of food sovereignty as an approach because it brings in all of these questions about autonomy and control, is that it's sort of a, a laundry list of different goods or things that people would like, right? And just kind of, you know, the people yeah. say, and food connect to try to connect all of those. Right. So one of those, um, and, you know, kind of the focus of your paper that people might or might not think uh, is a natural component of food sovereignty is gender equality or gender equity. So the idea is that, you know, okay, fine, let's have food. Let's make, I mean, definitely food security. Let's make sure people can eat. And maybe we even want communities to be able to have localized control over what that looks like for them on various kinds of justice grounds and also maybe practical grounds, like they make more locally informed decisions. But why would that, like, what's the typical sort of response to the, to the complaint that that shouldn't necessarily have any role for women one way or the other? So I think people worry I mean, first, just to maybe clarify the objection Mm -hmm. a little bit, is I think people worry that the concept of food sovereignty has gotten to the point where it's so inclusive that it sort of lacks, it lacks cohesion and thus sort of undermines its own power, right, as a transformative really kind of concept when you can add everything you want or everything that you think is might be usefully connected to food then it becomes sort of less useful, less practical of a concept, less the goal is less attainable. And that in some ways, perhaps it undermines itself. I didn't um, write about this in this particular paper, but I have worked on it for another project where there's a worry that if you include everything under the food sovereignty concept, some of those goals are going to be in conflict with one another. Mm -hmm. And I think 
that's true of gender justice in ways that I can talk about more if you like. But the, the lack of cohesion and the, the idea that this concept is supposed to do so many things, I think, has people concerned. Why might gender justice uh, run counter to other goals that food sovereignty has? Well, there are some specific goals um, that, of course, become varied in application because the concept is supposed to be malleable, right, mm -hmm. for different peoples and places, sure. right? But one of the goals, for example, some people might think is in tension with a more broader goal of gender equity is the maintenance maintenance of, for example, traditional knowledges. There's an acknowledgement, right, of the important role that women play in food production, in food sovereignty discourses. Um, and I think that's really important. It's one of the reasons that gender equity and women's attentiveness to women's historical lack of power in decision-making has been a part of food sovereignty from the beginning, is this acknowledgement of the role that women play in food culture and food production. Um, and there's a, an attentiveness to that and the goal of maintaining uh, traditional knowledge systems, traditional forms of exchange and production. However, a lot of feminists are worried about appeals to tradition and for good reason. Traditional um, social hierarchies devalue women, right. right? And so there's this sort of tension of how do we at the same time acknowledge traditional women's um, roles while at the same time rethinking uh, social hierarchies in a way that are, is more equitable for women. You can see why why the tension is there. You want to, at the same time, appeal to traditional knowledge and reject aspects of tradition in a way that can be, I mean, it requires a lot of nuanced negotiation. The project that I wrote, where I talk about these things in more detail, is organized in a way where I sort of identify some of these key commitments of food sovereignty activists, and they're, they're broad, like the commitment to revalue traditional knowledge systems and exchanges. And then I look at how in the literature, other scholars are doing this work of identifying the ways in which these different commitments might come into conflict or internal tension. Um, and especially one that keeps resurfacing when I was doing this literature review was the, the conflict or the tension with gender equity. And so I, then I use a sort of ecological feminist analysis to look at, oh, can we actually see these as compatible? Can, is there, do we have the theoretical toolbox um, that we, you know, that we can draw from to think about ways where we can do both things simultaneously, right? We can um, commit to these uh, goals and acknowledge at the same time, you know, ways to negotiate these tensions in practice, 
I can send you that when you're done, if it might be something you're interested in looking at. I would love to take a look at that. So let me ask, um, you mentioned uh, an eco-feminist approach. So for our listeners, what is eco-feminism? So my philosophical heroine is a woman called Val Plumwood. Yeah, she's great. I I take my understanding of eco-feminism from her, and she actually rejected the label um, in her career because it has a lot of different meanings and not all of them have good connotations in the philosophical community. So I would define ecofeminism as recognizing and attempting to draw out the connections between environmental politics and feminist politics. Um, It's a sort of theoretical framework that acknowledges the mutually reinforcing nature of sexism and speciesism, some people want to say, but I would say something more just like environmental degradation. Mm -hmm. And the assertion drawn from those analyses is that feminists ought to be committed to redressing environmental harm and environmentalists ought to be committed to feminist um, concerns and addressing them. There are a lot of different nuanced perspectives under the umbrella of ecological feminism. Um, And I can talk more about Plumwood's own framework if you're interested in that but yeah yeah, I think that might be helpful um specifically like her idea of uh, value dualism is I think an interesting kind of concept yeah she she's very um she has a very thorough job of laying out traditional conceptual frameworks um in philosophy in political theory just sort of in the history of ideas that have provided justification and just kind of a habitual conceptual foundation for the kind of environmental harm and social harms that we that we see and she's she argues that these conceptual frameworks are dualistic value dualistic meaning that they they tend to set up sets of Um, pairs, right? Most of which we would be really familiar with and that that would feel really natural to us, like mind and body, culture and nature, masculine, feminine. Um, And what makes these pairs so problematic is that we come to understand them as concepts that are radically separate from each other and hierarchically ordered, right? So we value, we see mind and body, for example, as two radically different things. And we understand mind as, and the, and the workings of mind as more valuable than body and the workings of body. And what's, what Plumwood does so well is that she demonstrates how these conceptual pairs mutually reinforce one another, right? So mind and body gets linked 
to, for example, culture and nature. We see the, the projects of human mind as cultural projects, right? And we, we, we think of them as radically different than the kinds of workings that nature um, undertakes. We wouldn't even use that as a, as a, we wouldn't even use that verb in that way, maybe, um, because they're seen as sort of just instinctual, natural processes and not creative. I see what you mean. Like, um, you know, we might say that in nature, uh, things happen, whereas culturally we are trying to do something. Um, right. And, and there's an intellectual, there's an, right. It's a, it's an intellectual um, sort of project that's human, right? And so you have the human nature separation that gets mapped onto these other kinds of pairs um, and in a way that you know, you value one half of these dichotomies over and above the other half. And that mutually enforces it in a way, right, where because we value humans so much um, and we value mind so much and we value culture, we also associate all of those things historically in the history of ideas with masculinity. Right. So right? The other, Reason, the, mind, yeah. and humanity itself um becomes mass coded masculine yeah so like right, one, one of the most essential ones. one of the most essential dichotomies is is male versus female or man versus woman right and there's there's a, a an implicit assumption if it's not stated outright it is by some philosophers right that these that masculine traits are are better <laughs> it's what makes us moral it's what makes us fundamentally human um and so when you have that kind of, and, and that there's not an overlap, it's not a spectrum, it's an either or, right? Um, and so in, the ecofeminists um, assert that if we want to reject these assumptions and posit alternatives, then we're really going to need to be attentive to the way that these dichotomies reinforce and and interact with each other um, and i think the more intersectional interesting approaches tend to think of it as a center and periphery model even rather than like two two columns right where the valued identities or the valued concepts cohere in a way right to create this sort of like master identity and all, everything else becomes peripheral, peripheral, right? Able to be colonized by that master identity and, you know, a resource for his projects. Yeah, that, that leads into another uh, concept. I mean, this, this idea of, you know, the center and periphery and the relationship between them that I'd love you to talk about in ecofeminism, which is the logic of domination, like Warren's idea. Right. Yeah, Karen Warren is another ecological feminist um, who does a really nice job of explaining how these different kinds of dominations are connected. And she, she argues that there is a premise, a, a justifying premise in all of these arguments, whether they're, again, implicit or explicit. Um, that 
for these sort of oppositional dichotomies, for any oppositional dichotomy, if one is superior to the other, then there is a justification, a moral justification for domination. So, um, for example, insofar as humans are morally superior to nature, right? If we're looking at the human nature dichotomy and there's this assumption that humans are superior to nature, then humans are justified in dominating nature. Um, she thinks that this is the premise that is implied in all patriarchal um, arguments, right? Insofar as men are seen as superior to women, then men are justified in dominating women. Yeah, and and the superior and the superiority that you're talking about isn't just like a might makes right sort of a thing, right? The, it's not just that because men are maybe physically stronger or something than women, then there's a right to dominate, or because humans are stronger than uh, nature, then we have a right to exploit it for our uses. But actually, that because if the reverse happened, right? If there were some violence of women against men, or if there, or if nature attacks humanity, that's wrong in some sense. Right. There's a I mean, she thinks the premise is just ridiculous. When we try to like spell out what it would mean or why why the superiority, how the superiority can be explained, we can't do it very successfully. We have to reject this premise, right? This the the superiority implies moral superiority, right? Um, why do you think and, people can't explain that? Is it because in the past there would have been an appeal to like re religion, and since that doesn't fly so much anymore in a moral argument, then there isn't a, le a leg left to stand on? Or what, what do you think the problem is? I think there's an arbitrariness to whatever kind of line you try to draw, right? Even if you try mm -hmm. to identify some criterion, whatever it is, you can find exceptions all the time. You get to this point where you just have to say, oh, th this is an arbitrary point to, of, of value. <laughs> um, I think the religion argument does still work for a lot of people. It may probably, sure. it's not going to work for moral philosophers. It works for a lot of others. Um, but one of my advisors um, for my PhD program, Chris Cuomo, who, if you're interested in ecological feminism, go check out her work. Um, she says there comes a, a point where in any moral argument where you just have to put your foot down at some point, you just have to say, this is an assumption that I'm making. If it's an assumption that we can agree on, then we can move forward. And if it's not, then we're kind of stuck. I think what Warren does is she lays out in these arguments, right, that, um, that would have to be made if you we were going to actually try to justify uh, some kind of hierarchical power arrangement or justify actions that are carried out because that arrangement is agreed to, then you have to make this premise explicit, this premise that says it's okay because we've identified a superior and an inferior and, and we agree that it's okay that the superior dominates the inferior, right? That's how we get to our conclusion. But once you make that explicit and you see that the logic of domination is 
has to be present as a premise in the argument in order for the conclusion to follow, right? Many of us want to reject that, that premise, right? And hence the conclusions don't follow, right? I, I think that, and I agree with Warren that feminists have to reject this premise, right? If that's the case, um, then they should reject it in all of its instantiations, probably, right? And because it's also a premise in the in the domination of non-humans, we would want to reject it there too, right? That gives us a reason to really expand our feminist endeavors to include environmental concerns, um, justice for non-humans. So I'll come back around to um, food sovereignty in a second, but. Just off of that, can I ask, are you yourself vegan? So I'm not a vegan. I don't eat flesh. Um, I'm getting closer and closer to vegan every day. Uh, I have been a member of a community-supported agriculture program here in Atlanta. And through that, we do get eggs. Um, and I, so I have... We do use locally sourced eggs in my house. Okay. Do you think that that's compatible with uh, non-domination of, you know, you know, like going against this logic of domination for non-human animals? Well, this sort of gets into the, the chapter I wrote for the book, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'll sneak in a book plug anytime I can. <laughs> <laughs> so I have attempted to argue <laughs> that I think there are ways of incorporating animals into agriculture that are adequately respectful. I know that it might not um, satisfy someone who is after a more rigid rule-based approach, mm -hmm. but I think a dialogical partnership-based approach to agriculture is possible. I don't know that it has been achieved. It's certainly uh, not the dominant model. Um, and I, I do refrain from eating most meat and consuming most dairy products for that reason. Right. Um, yeah, I don't think anyone would argue that I don't think anyone would use ecofeminism as a framework for defending the current industrial agricultural practices. No, you can't. No, you can't. But I mean, so I have had discussions with people who suggest that it's impossible to um, respect someone, should I say, if mm -hmm. you intend to eat that thing, that one. Um, and I don't want to say that that's true. I don't think that's true. Uh, my the chapter that I wrote for the book tries to explain why I don't think that's true. Um, I think you can say that it's not true that you cannot respect and eat something and reject the logic of domination. I think that you can do both of those things. You can still, and in fact have to, I would hope, to be just, respect the things that you eat, sentient or not, and simultaneously 
reject the logic of domination as a justificatory premise. Yeah, and I will um, say, uh, uh, for readers, you might want to go find um, Val Plumwood's writing on humans as prey, uh, the, yes. value, the value that that gives us for respecting nature differently. This is the essay of hers that I have my undergraduate students read. It's called Being Prey. And in it, she describes her near-fatal encounter with a crocodile in the Australian outback. And it is a very powerful piece, not only because it's so well-written and so um, interesting to read about that experience, but because it has the effect of radically changing your perspective with regard to your own edibility. <laughs> and, and she thinks, like, in a good way, like, she... she after, again, to be clear, after having almost been eaten by an animal, thinks that uh, that has salutary, like it's, it's beneficial. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it has the benefit of making very vivid our own ontological status. Right. We, are, we can be meat for others. Um, we're not separate in that regard. Um, and we're morally valuable. So you can be ontologized. In fact, we are ontologized as simultaneously edible and um, valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it, it's a great article. I'll probably link to it in the show notes for people. It's well you worth reading. Should. And she's a wonderful writer as well. She is. So, okay, so this is, so the literature on ecofeminism is really interesting and sort of under, um, discussed, I think, even in academic uh, discourse, let alone outside of that. But so how does that feed back into uh, food sovereignty and this argument for gender equity? Well, I think what ecofeminism can do is it can help us cohere seemingly disparate goals. And that is by situating those goals as part of a broader political effort to radically reimagine power dynamics. So that's one way. And the other way is to make clear that environmental harm and violence against women, for example, are not completely distinct problems, that they can be thought of as two manifestations of similar kinds of conceptual frameworks and the political and social arrangements that are built on those frameworks. And I think ecofeminism can then provide sort of a, a conceptual foundation for, for many of these seemingly disparate goals and show why gender justice is not tangential to a movement that is really about radically redistributing power. Right, so, so that laundry list critique I was mentioning earlier, it's not just a bunch of good things, but rather it flows out of these sorts of ideas of domination or artificial division. Right, and there are ways of making things that feel abstract, like when we're talking about this in a very theoretical way, it can feel abstract, but when you start to want to make it real or you, you see what you're what people are doing 
in real life in their actions and start to put it together, right? So it goes in both directions. Then you begin to see, oh, this is the way that you address specific harms that are connected by these broader structures. Does that make sense? Yeah. So can I ask then, um, so that, you know, that makes sense that these are all connected issues. And so it makes sense that a, uh, a movement would want to see them holistically and address them. Um, but does that, is there also then an argument for why food ought to be centered as the thing that uh, connects those? Because you could equally imagine, um, you know, an environmental movement or um, just a gender justice movement or, you know, a justice for non-human animals or whatever uh, kind of movement that then would also need to take on board all of these other ideas uh, in this framework. So is there something special about food, you think, that lends itself to this discourse? I do. And I think it's obvious, which makes it hard to articulate, <laughs> right? Which is that everyone needs it every single day and everything is about it, right? Um, so I'm talking to you from quarantine, where the precarity of my community's uh, connection to food has been put into relief so quickly and so so powerfully. The lines for the Atlanta Community Food Bank, and also if you wouldn't mind linking to your local food bank, Ian, and my food bank, the Atlanta Community Food Bank, for people who are so moved to contribute. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'm actually trying to arrange an bank. interview. I'm trying to arrange an interview with my local food bank um, for the podcast for this reason. That that would be amazing because. They're a little busy right now. <laughs> they're, they're a little busy right now, but it's because the necessity, the precarity, the cultural and individual meaning that food has. I mean, food, This it sounds so stupid to say it, but food is life. <laughs> it makes perfect sense to me that food takes on this important social political role and that a justice movement can be built around it because it is so fundamental to our physical, cultural, individual, emotional well-being. One of the worries I think about food sovereignty, you know, there's the coherence issue, but there's also sort of like the overdetermined <laughs> objection, right? This makes food do too much. It's just food. Right. But I just don't see that as a powerful objection. I think that food does so much. Right. It does these things. Look at the way it operates now and then ask again. Right. How much does food do? Like, isn't isn't this an appropriate situation? Right. An appropriate context to be talking about questions of justice, power, health, of course. I guess I just don't see it as a powerful objection. Right. And I mean, it's certainly an objection made by people who haven't ever um, felt their access to food being deeply constrained by powers that they didn't control. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. That's probably true. It's quite, in, I mean, this is just an aside, but, um, you know, in uh, Michigan, where I used to live, where I got my PhD, uh, the governor has, um, right now for quarantine, said that a lot of non-essential items can't be bought at grocery stores. Um, so as to encourage people just to go to grocery stores for essentials. But 
one of the things, I mean, one of the things that was designated as essential is uh, Michigan State lottery tickets, but put that to the side. <laughs> one, one of the things that was decided to be not essential are seeds and seedlings. Oh, wow. Yeah, which I feel like in this, in this context is a little, um, let's say, short-sighted. Yes, I'm seeing in the Atlanta area a powerful resurgence of community gardening, um, people planting their own gardens, you know, using the resources at their disposal that they perhaps weren't as attentive to before, but are now keenly attentive to the shortness of the supply chain, right, when it comes to supporting a local urban farm, as opposed to, um, you know, going to Publix for, for produce that came from far away and was handled by how many people <laughs> before it got to you, people are starting to sort of count those points of contact in a way that they didn't before they were worried about uh, coronavirus. Yeah, it's, um, sort of, it's sort of like, um, you know, when you hurt a part of your back or some muscle, you're like, oh, I use that muscle for lots of things. You realize how connected your body is. Uh, right. Likewise, when there's a problem, you're like, oh, the, wow, this food system really is deeply integrated with society. Right. So um, for some academics, there can be a lot of uh, very abstract thinking about these issues. Do you, think mm -hmm. there's a, do you think there's a value in grounding what you're working on? You know, some people call it doing more field philosophy or more engaged philosophy of thinking about, you know, practical, local, you know, concrete issues. Um, I think, of, yes, there's a value. I don't think that means if you're doing very theoretical work that that means it's not valuable. Sure. I would like to have engagements with questions like this happening in many different ways at many different levels. My own work tends to be very theoretical um, and I don't do a lot of field work, although I do think anecdotally and use anecdotes to work through my philosophy. Um, I think there's absolutely a need for philosophers in the world doing all kinds of things. You know, Lisa Heldke, who has been very helpful um, sort of uh, conversation partner for me, um, gave yeah, me some I'm... great advice when I was struggling with how to, what my philosophical trajectory would look like let's put it that way and she said we need philosophers doing all kinds of things <laughs> so I think there should absolutely be philosophers who are engaging with agricultural projects maybe they're in the university setting with their ag departments or maybe they're in their local communities with their local food systems um and engaging with that work from a philosophical perspective and incorporating it into their written work or into their teaching. Um, I also sort of think food studies needs more philosophers. I've been to a lot of conferences and had a lot of conversations that were dominated by sort of social scientists. And I think um, there's a need for more philosophers to talk about food in more ways. Um, so I think absolutely everyone should be <laughs> working with food yeah that's, that's kind of connected to the uh the you know the flip side of that question which is uh you know for people who are just engaging in food in i don't want to say normal ways almost imply academics are abnormal but in uh non-academic ways 
either just as people who live in the world and engage with the food system as eaters and possibly gardeners or farmers, um, or people who are activists, um, what value do you think uh, sort of humanity's examination of food uh, can be? Why read these books? Well, <laughs> I believe in the importance of reflection. I think a lot of times we use words or concepts or we appeal to ideas or histories or traditions in a way that isn't as careful as it could be. Sometimes that has the effect of bringing baggage along that we don't mean to or or don't realize. And as a feminist, I I do believe in the importance of making sure that we're not reproducing old injustices in our new alternatives. Um, so if we're local food advocates, you know, when we're appealing to things like tradition, what does that carry along, right? Um, what is implicit in our arguments that we're not making explicit? Um, I think philosophy has a lot to offer in terms of making our reflection intentional and useful for our our everyday activities and the way we talk about those activities and convince others that they should do them too. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, the point you're making earlier about just being explicit about some ethical sort of commitments uh, that we didn't realize we were endorsing can make people like as soon as they say it out loud, realize that A, they were endorsing that with their actions or with other thoughts that they had had, and B, realize that they don't actually agree with that and don't want to support it. Um, you know, the real power of um, ethics and morals um, in this area and in lots of areas is to just make explicit uh, the commitments that people have and the, what people are actually agreeing to. Right. I, so, I agree. <laughs> right. I win. Uh, so... Um, I've also, I'm also asking everyone on this podcast to, to talk about a specific food that's important to them, either a recipe if they have one or just a food themselves. And I started doing this because uh, in the philosophy of food class that I teach at my university, um, I have each class period begin with someone, uh, me at first and then students, bringing some food that's important to them, talking about it and sharing it with the class. And the idea isn't that it's uh, the most delicious food they can think of necessarily, well, it certainly can be, but rather that it's something that that has some connection to them. And I found it's really powerful, both as a way to get people to talk about their relationships with food, and also because sharing with one another really makes a qualitative difference in the kind of um, connections that people have. You know, there's something to the idea of sitting down and breaking bread with people that uh, changes the way that you relate to one another. So, I ask you, and uh, can you talk a little bit about the recipe that you've uh, made available for me and the listeners? Yes, I will tell you it's not vegan, I'm afraid, but totally it is a, a cookie recipe. Um, my maternal grandparents, their children, and their children, and now my children as well, <laughs> so the great-grandchildren, we always have a cookie party at the holidays. And um, this is the sugar cookie recipe that we use. 
it's not that hard to make. It's a little bit time consuming, but the time is time that you would be in the kitchen with all your family anyway. So it's well spent. And then we, we cut the cookies into lots of fun shapes and we reimagine what the cookie cutters might be if you turn them upside down or sideways. And then we paint and we get very elaborate and we make lots of mistakes and then we eat the mistakes that we make. Um, but it's a, a, one of the ways that my family has come together around food. Um, so I wanted to share that with you. That's great. I have uh, a picture of some of the cookies that you guys have done and they are, <laughs> I just have to say to the listeners, I'll, I'll, I'll include the photo, but uh, these are very intricate cookies. These are not joking around <laughs> cookies. This is not your We've typical like, sugar dust. We've gotten more, on top and more talented over the years, Ian. We've gotten, we've honed our skills. And is there, um, are, are there family reputations about who is better or worse or who does certain kinds of things every year? Absolutely. Some of us are more detail oriented than others. And some of us like to, to come up with new techniques. So the marbled cookies that you see are done by my aunt Kate, who has always been one of the most creative in the family. The, the ones that just have globs and globs of frosting are probably done by the youngest generation right. who are a little less patient and less inclined to use the toothpicks as a tool. Or as opposed to just making, the knives. Or successfully making an over-iced cookie, which was their goal, right? That could happen. Too. Yes. Oh, better eat that one. Right. Yeah, I, um, I'm going to have to get someone on here at some point to talk about Borgman and focal practices and focal objects and the way that these sorts of repeated traditional practices can help structure your identity, right? One of the things about you is that you're creative and you do artistic cookies or you do funny cookies every year. Yes. And it you come together. I'm the i don't know how borgman would think about the stand mixer but <laughs> as a focal point of the holiday kitchen um i do think it has a lot of the um desired qualities right of bringing people together yeah and, and I, you yeah. do know how it how it works <laughs> right yeah and you could fix it if it breaks at least a little but yeah, you um, were saying, you know, it's time we would have spent in the kitchen anyway. I really think you need to go to other people's houses and watch them all looking at their screens before, <laughs> before you so confidently oh. <laughs> state that we would be talking to each other either way. I mean, it's nice to have a, something that forces you to talk. Well, that's true, too. That's true, too. When my family gets together, maybe this is uh, more unique to my family than I realized. But when when we get together, it's all about the food it's not necessarily a meal but you have the spread on the on the counter and it is just there all day and so you're picking at it and you're coming in and out of the kitchen to partake of the spread yeah, so fantastic all right. <laughs> so um you know for listeners who want to uh hear more from Anne, as i was saying i'll link to it in the description but she has a blog and portman phd that's Anne a-n-n-e uh, so annportmanphd.com. But Anne, thank you so much for um, participating in this. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Anne. Thanks a lot. That was my conversation with Anne Portman. Links to the article of hers we were discussing, as well as her chapter in a book I edited with Zachary Piso, are in the show notes, which you can read while you eat cookies from her recipe, which is also there. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at Food Thought Pod, 
And if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed or any feedback on this episode or any other episode, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today.